This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled, The Spiritual Root of Intolerance, recorded January 31st, 1993, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the question comes up that if tolerance is a spiritual virtue, uh, where does intolerance come from? Why are people intolerant? Why are people prejudiced? This is a phenomena that is not just a Western uh, European phenomena. This is across the globe. You can start in one corner and you find the uh, Irish hate the British and the British hate the Irish uh, based on religion. And the uh, throughout Europe, the French hate the Germans, the Germans hate the French. What's going on in Yugoslavia today? The Croats hate the Serbs, the Serbs hate the <laughs> Muslims, the Muslims hate the Croats, uh, the Greeks hate the Turks, the, uh, the Hindus hate the Muslims, Muslims hate the Hindus. Uh, when I was in Vietnam, I was very surprised to find how much um, ethnocentrism there was. The Vietnamese hate the Cambodians, the Thais hate the Vietnamese, the Chinese hate them all, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, and it can be based on race, it can be based on ethnic origin, it can be based on uh, religion, uh, whatnot. It, it's a, uh, what happens in our culture, and this of course has happened before, when one peoples conquers the other peoples, then this hatred is uh, unequal. And so you have this ongoing severe uh, oppression. When two countries are neighbors and they just fight each other all the time, uh, you don't have the same sort of asymmetry that you find in the racial situation in the United States, which makes it particularly uh, horrendous. But you do find the seeds of this all over the world. Why should this be the case? Anybody got any ideas? Fear of the unknown, I would say. Okay, but why do people fear the unknown? I'm afraid it might bring about their death. They're afraid of death. Afraid of death. Very good. It's, it sounds simplistic, but it's very good. This is, of course, in, from the point of view of spiritual traditions, uh, one of the root uh, sufferings. It's not the root suffering, our fear of death. Our fear of death motivates indirectly so much of our lives. A constant search to avoid death, to escape death, to hold death off. And, and out of that... We find uh, we have this desire for those things we think are going to uh, enhance our life, to keep it going, uh, and whatnot. And so we become attached to them. So we're constantly struggling for uh, those to maintain those conditions that we think are good for our life and to avoid those conditions that we think are going to destroy our life. But why should the unknown cause this fear? I mean, the unknown is neutral and from a from a purely logical point of view, it may be something that's going to uh, enhance your life. Yeah. Because if society teaches me to live and believe, and, you know, this is the right way to live and believe and everything, and I don't even realize that I was taught it, it's just that's the way that's right, and then other people, they don't live like that, so they must be wrong. If my way's right, they must be wrong. Ah, uh, so, and then if I start to see that, Maybe their way is interesting. It threatens the security of my way in my culture and everything being right. But why would we have to say their way is wrong? Why not just say their way is different? Because my, my way is not right in the way that it was before. It's not absolutely right. <laughs> Very good. Very good. In, uh, in modern Western uh, materialist culture, uh, there are all sorts of explanations for this. One explanation, for instance, is this based on the fear of the unknown, and it's, uh, it's based on the evolutionary theory, the Darwinian evolutionary theory, that, well, human beings all uh, adapted to their various niches in the world, <coughs> and they evolved ways of being culture and, uh, and customs and so forth that uh, tended towards their survival. And so they uh, had this fear of uh, anything that threatened that. This is uh, all right as far as it goes, but it doesn't explain a lot of things. Yeah. Also, we have this 
belief that we prove through negation. And so that's, I think, what you were talking about. Yeah, but again, the question, the deeper question is why? I mean, why is the A or not A formula in place? We're going to come back to that one. And so this explanation, this uh, Darwinian explanation, actually is nice to think about overall, but when you really get down to the specifics of people's cultures, it doesn't uh, really work. For instance, uh, in the beginning, they thought they, they found things like the Jews had this um, taboo against eating pork. And then, of course, pork is, uh, has, carries a high risk of trichinosis. And so uh, philosophers, Darwinian philosophers said, ah, well, you see, this is, this is why the Jews didn't eat pork, because it, if you ate a lot of pork, you would you know, get trichinosis and it wasn't good for your survival. Well, everybody else eats pork. And the Jews certainly didn't know that they got trichinosis from pork. Trichinosis takes 10 years to, to mature. It, it goes into a dormant phase and it insists in your body. And 10 years later, you get trichinosis. There's no way you can make this connection unless you have microscopes and whatnot and have a modern understanding of disease. And then there are all sorts of other things that the Jews had to booze against, like eating shellfish, not cutting their beards for the men and whatnot. So how is all that promoting survival? And then there are completely contradictory sorts of customs. Uh, one culture circumcises, another culture doesn't. If one was promoting survival, how come everybody doesn't do it? So this theory is, is sort of a nice general catch-all theory. It makes us feel comfortable that we understand what's going on, but when you really dig into it, uh, you can't. It, it's not very useful. You can't really explain all this diversity, this enormous diversity in human behavior and whatnot. Uh, another uh, modern theory is the theory of, related to the theory of evolution, but the theory of progress. And that is that uh, human beings are evolving uh, biologically and psychologically, particularly. So we had these poor primitive people who didn't know how to think theoretically and logically, and they were all steeped in myth and dreams, and they couldn't sort out what was real and what was unreal. And so they developed all these strange sorts of customs, which somehow... Uh, the one survival value they had was they lent cohesion to the group. Okay, that's okay as far as it goes, but uh, the trouble with that is two things. One is that that comes from the point of view that we have arrived at the highest evolution, of course, us Western white people, that we are now logical and, and uh, we're beyond the pre-theoretical stage. and We're in the theor theoretical stage, and so we really understand. And this might make you suspect because it means that everybody else all our ancestors, from whatever cultural race you come from, uh, up to about 200 years ago, were all nincompoops and dummies and uh, didn't know what they were doing. And you wonder how the human race could have survived this, this sort of semi-psychotic state, you know, where they believe their hallucinations and all that. There's another problem with this theory, however, and that is that it is not true that so-called primitive peoples are pre-theoretical and can't think logically. And they've done very close studies of this. Uh, for instance, uh, I just read a study from uh, the Trobriand Islands that was a study of the legal cases over land disputes and how they argued them in their courts. And of course, we have to borrow Western terms here. Uh, and how they uh, settled uh, disputes. And it's very interesting. It's 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 a whole different culture, and it's based on different premises and different ideas of what constitutes land ownership, which go back to the uh, mythical ancestors. And they have a far more complex idea of land ownership that involves the 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 uh, the mythic ownership of the tribe, that involves the use rights, lease rights, rents, and so forth. Far more complex than in our culture. We we think we have uh, complicated laws. Well, these are very complicated, and when two people are disputing who has the right to use the land, they go back and they trace the history, and this is all oral because they don't have a written record, so they trace the history of the gifts that were given uh, in order to uh, acquire these rights. And the one whose story is consistent and has no contradictions is the one who wins. And the other side, when there's a contradiction or an inconsistency in their story, that's the one that's thrown out. 
just like a, a modern uh, court of law. This comes back to this idea that you raised, Nancy, this uh, idea that something either is or isn't. Something cannot be both uh, true and false at the same time in logical thought. It cannot be A and not A. It cannot exist and not exist in logical thought. It has to be one or the other. This is true for all peoples. This insistence on uh, consistency in the view of the world is universal. Another uh, report I read recently was from a book that we actually have in the library by Clifford Gertz, an anthropologist, and he describes, uh, gee, where was it now? Well, it was like the Trobriand Islands. It wasn't the Trobriand Islands, but someplace like that. Uh, oh, it was Java. The uh, One day, there were suddenly these unusually large toadstools grew up on this man's uh, farm. And villagers came from miles around, and everybody had to propose a theory to explain these um, large toadstools. And he points out, Clifford Gertz points out, that toadstools have about as much import to Javanese culture as they have in our culture. And it's not that there was anything uh, special about toadstools. What was special was that there was this strange thing that didn't fit with the way the world should work. And it requires an explanation. And Gertz was telling the story to point out that, again, that this is universal. And what he, he describes it as warding off a what he calls metaphysical anxiety. And we can see this, uh, the depth of this anxiety in the reactions people have to meeting people from different cultures. And the, the way this unfolds, in most cultures, a stranger coming into the culture is not greeted necessarily with hostility, often with curiosity. They might have very different ways and customs, but the uh, culture that they're entering, they're curious about them. They get treated fairly well. When more strangers start to come, and there's a realization that there's a whole group of other people out there who live in a whole different kind of world and have different beliefs and customs and so forth. Then the hostility arises. And the hostility is virulent. Virulent? Virulent, thank you. It's, it's uh, not just a little bit of uh, fear of the unknown and so forth. It, it has the potential of becoming absolutely, horrendously bloodthirsty. We can think of um, uh, the wars of extermination that have been fought all over the world. What's going on today in Yugoslavia and uh, in India between the, the riots between the Hindus and Muslims uh, are very good examples of these, and I, I just picked them out because they happen to be in the news, but it could be anywhere, anytime tomorrow you could read a story like this. There's not just this sort of fear of the unknown, there's a terror of this. And it's not just the unknown, it is knowing that th these, what these people represent and that they are different. When they're still just unknown, very often there's a curiosity. Sometimes there's a built-in hostility. But when it becomes clear that these people live differently, think differently, believe differently, have a different way of life, then this tremendous hostility arises. Why? Coming back to Nancy's question, and, and what Jennifer mentioned, why do you have to be, uh, if you're not right, if you're right, the other person has to be wrong. They can't just be different. If they're just different, if their way of life is a plausible, reasonable way of life, then your way of life is not. Now, it's interesting because if we look at the modern explanations, I've just said the Darwinian explanations and uh, these sort of uh, psychoevolutionary explanations of pre-theoretical development and whatnot, they really don't hold water. In fact, they are part and parcel of our culture's attempt to explain why people are different from us. 
we're like those Javanese trying to explain the toadstools. There are all these people out there who live differently from us. There must be some reason, some reason that proves that we're right or smarter or better. Do you see what I mean? Now, once we can come up with a reason like that, that's perfectly understandable because these people are kind of subhuman in a certain sense. We would never say that because we're good liberals and whatnot. But that's what that thinking means. These Javanese are like children. And, and a lot of the models of this evolutionary development are, are based on psychological models of the development of the child. So the anthropologist goes over to uh, Java and he studies them and he appreciates the culture and uh, whatnot, but they still remain in his eyes children, pre-theoretical, pre-logical. That's now perfectly acceptable for the anthropologist. The anthropologist world is secure. The anthropologist lives, after all, in a world of science. We know that science tells us about reality. And we know you couldn't possibly learn about reality through dreams or visions or anything like that. What is the explanation? Now, it's very interesting because there is a spiritual explanation. In all mystical traditions, the world that we live in is an illusion. It's Maya. It's, in the Quran, a sport and a pastime. In uh, Christianity, it's a world of sin. And sin, the original meaning and the mystical meaning is sin is error, mistake. That somehow our perception of the world is off. It's very interesting what the word world means. It means man-age. It, does, it means a world in which humans live. And in, from a mystical point of view, this world is constructed out of the imagination. It's an imaginary world. That means that literally it's constructed out of images in the mind. Which, for instance, in uh, Hinduism are projected onto reality. Images uh, are, are formed out of distinctions. This is a lamp, this is a watch, this is a gun, this is a cup. Distinguishable objects. And the primary distinction is the distinction between I and other, self and world. There's me and there's the world out there. And from the Hindu point of view, all this is a projection onto that Brahman, that absolute ultimate reality in which there are no distinctions. Everything is one. There is no other than the Brahman. There is no second. There is no nothing uh, outside of this Brahman who has no attributes, no distinctions. Same thing is true among the Sufis. There is nothing but Allah. In all traditions you find this. This is why the, one of the most universal descriptions of the God, Brahman, Tao, or whatever, is the one. The one, the unity, that which has no distinctions in it. The world is created out of distinctions. It's imaginary. Now, I think Perhaps a couple months ago, I asked you all to do this experiment. Some of you weren't here, so I'm going to ask you to do it again. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine a circle. Has everybody imagined a circle? Now keep your eyes closed, and now I want you to imagine a square. Now. I want you to imagine a single figure that is both a circle and a square. And not a circle in a square or a square in a circle. One figure that is a circle square. Now open your eyes. Could everybody imagine a circle? Could everybody imagine a square? But you could not imagine a circle square, could you? 
You could? Yeah. Could you draw it for us? Yeah. Could you get this a little piece of scratch paper <laughs> under the, <laughs> under the, uh, well, maybe no, no, under the little box there, and there's a pen there. I want. I would like to see a circle square. You're the first person ever. Well, a circle of squares is that different? That's different. No, that's different. Those are made up of lots of little figures. Circle and square. Circle and square. That's what. What is that? First, you have to fill in the bottom part, but you, I can draw that in too. What do we need to fill in the bottom part? Oh, the circle. Okay, draw and fill in the fill in the circle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's not either a circle or a square. In fact, the geometer could tell you. Well, I'm sure there's a name for that figure. Really? Well, it's the definition of a circle, for instance is a figure, let's see, does anybody know the, the exact geometric definition? All points are equidistant from, all points in the circumference are equidistant from the center. Now, you don't have any center here, and uh, from which all the points on the circumference are equidistant. And uh, I, I couldn't give you the geometric definition of a square, but I, I can guarantee you it wouldn't help. For those of you listening to this tape, this is a sort of a box, uh, uh, I mean a square, but the top is broken and then there's a semi, sort of semicircle coming off the top. So it looks like a very, a, a, a cubist version of the head and shoulders of a human being. How about that? <laughs> anyway, it's not a circle square. This is the point. It cannot be imagined. So what she did was to make up a new figure and give new definitions. Right. She combined the various definitions we had. Well, no, but they, she didn't. This does not fit either a circle or a square. It's something new. She gave a new definition. Yeah. A new figure, and it would have its a new definition. But it is not imagining a circle and a square at the same time. It's either a circle or it's a square. Or it's a new figure. Or it's a new figure. But we're talking if we're talking in terms of circles and squares, or it's something new. That's very interesting. That's going to be important later. If it is not a square, then it's something else. It can't be a circle and a square at the same time. The world, whatever it is, that a culture imagines, because it's imaginary, has to be consistent. It has to be logical. It's what is sometimes called a nomos, it's from the Greek, N-O-M-O-S, a lawful universe. And anything that is anomalous, which is A-N-O-M-O, -O what? L-O-U-S. L-O-U-S, no, L-O, is that it? Yes. One L? Okay. Anything that is anomalous is a threat. The toadstools are a threat. They don't make sense in this world. Toadstools don't have a right to grow this way in the world. So they have to be incorporated somehow. Now, remember this, uh, because the world is imaginary, it has to be constantly maintained. It's not like you think it up and there it is forever. Just like when you imagine a circle, you close your eyes, it's imagined and there it is. And then when you cease to imagine it, it goes away. The nomos, the societies, the cultures that people live in, have to be constantly maintained. We have to uh, remind ourselves, well, first of all, we have to educate ourselves, we have to educate our children, we have to bring them up, and through constant repetition, get them to behave in this the particular way that this culture behaves. If you've ever uh, potty trained a child or tried to teach a child how to eat with knife and fork or any of these things, these are all cultural specific things. You have to be drilled till it becomes habit that you constantly repeat. You have to be drilled in school to think a certain way. I mean, you sat in school and, uh, you know, heard over and over one form or another uh, about Western culture. That's what you learn. 
Jennifer here grew up in Eugene. She heard about the Oregon Trail. How many years running? <laughs> over and over and over. We're drilled and we're trained, and it comes down to daily talk. Gossip is about maintaining that imaginary world. We're constantly reminding ourselves. This is one reason why, by the way, silence is such a powerful spiritual practice. If you get the mind to shut up, that imaginary world isn't sustained. It starts to disappear. It's because the world is imaginary that we that all cultures have to, from whatever premises they're starting from, maintain consistency. And it's an ongoing project. It may be very different from the world that you live in. But it makes perfect sense in that world. For instance, I'll give you one example. This is very common in most pre-Western cultures. In Africa, in Europe, in, uh, among Native Americans, nothing happens in the world accidentally or by natural forces. Everything is caused by a person or persons. And persons, that category, unlike our way of thinking, doesn't just apply to human beings. The sun is a person among the Ojibwa Indians. And just the way uh, human beings have motives, uh, persons in the world who control the world have motives for doing things. So if someone from your village, let's say you're growing up in Africa, goes out and gets eaten by a lion, the first question to ask is who's responsible? Who did it? It couldn't be just an accident. So you go hunt for whoever's responsible. It might be a god or a demon. It might be a sorcerer in your village. There's a story, again, from the uh, uh, Native American traditions uh, that I, it's in our book on Native, Ameri Native Americans of the Eastern Woodlands, I believe, about two uh, hunters who go out hunting. They're trapping beavers or something. They're hanging them up. And I think it's a weasel or, or a fox or some little animal sort of poking around and looking to steal their catch. And one of them throws a, a stone at it, hits it in the face, and it runs off. But they're convinced that this was a uh, sorcerer in this, transformed into a weasel. And they came back to the village, and sure enough, here was a guy with a sore in his face just where they had thrown the rock. And so that was obvious. The guy transformed into a weasel. Now, you see, the, there's a perfect logic in this if you believe people can transform into weasels. It doesn't make sense to us because we don't buy those premises. But within that system, perfectly logical. And it's always an attempt to explain why this event happened, to make sense of the world. Now, why is this world so important? Because this world, upon this world, hinges your I, yourself. This is the fundamental distinction between I and other, self and world. If this is not a true world, this is not a true self. They're inseparable. No world, no self. No subject, no object. A threat to the nomos is a personal threat for everybody committed to that nomos, everybody who lives in that nomos, who lives in that world. A deep uh, a completely intimate threat, not just something, uh, a question of philosophy or religion or whatever. You can test yourself. Maybe some of you have read stories like this, science fiction stories, where someone gets up in the morning and they go outside and uh, all the, uh, uh, every, all the words, everything they read, the whole language is backwards. You're going, everything's, everything else is the same, but the street sign, uh, doesn't read uh, Adam Street, A-D-A-M. It reads Mada Street, M-A-D-A, right? You ever read a science fiction story like this or seen one on Twilight Zone or something? How spooky that would be. How absolutely weird that would make you feel. And another anthropology book I've been reading recently, a sociology book, 
uh, they give an interesting uh, uh, example of this. Supposing you woke up uh, tomorrow morning and everything was exactly the same, except that all the white people were now Asian. You walked out in the street and everybody's Asian. This is, a, this is the kind of thing that anomaly threatens to produce. The world no longer makes sense. The world uh, is uh, no longer solid. It's no longer objective. It's no longer there. It can no longer be relied upon. And then what does that say about you? You no longer exist. You no longer exist, right? And who said the fear of death is at the root of this? The fear of disappearing. So this is one reason prejudice, for instance, is so hard to eradicate even among intelligent people who know better. It's not just a question of changing people's mind on the surface. It, it, there's a reason for it. And the reason is because we desperately need to cling to this imaginary world we've created. Otherwise, we'll die. And this is precisely what the mystical traditions are always trying to point out to us. That this world is imaginary. That you are imaginary. Nothing wrong with imagination, but recognize that it's imaginary. Malcolm X said in his book, um, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, that the spiritual search for truth was the only, and that's his word, the only way to cure the racism that threatens to destroy this culture, this country. Now, he wrote this when he came back from his pilgrimage to Mecca, and he saw the power of Islam uh, in uh, wiping out these uh, racial differences, particularly on a pilgrimage. For the first time in his life, he sat down and he ate and talked with people who were white-skinned and blue-eyed, who he'd always thought of as devils, and there wasn't a trace of racism. They were all Muslims. And so he meant this. He could see the power of the spirit and this is the depth at which this problem exists at. The power of a spiritual path to search for spiritual truth is the only way to really eradicate racism. To understand that your world is imaginary. It is not true to begin with. Therefore, your neighbor's world that's different isn't false. If your world is the real world, then your neighbor's world has to be the false world because it's an anomaly to you, to your world. It won't fit with your nomos. So it's a threat. But once you surrender this idea that my world is the real world, once you start to at least be suspicious of it, at least doubt it, at least hold your deepest assumptions about reality a little bit gingerly. Take them as sort of working hypotheses. Then you can see the same thing is true of your neighbor. Even if your neighbor doesn't take it that way. Even if your neighbor is completely committed to their nomos and will hate anybody who uh, poses a challenge to it. And this doesn't matter. This is not a teaching of any particular nomos. It's beginning to be able to transcend all worlds, which is what a mystical path is about. It's not about finding the real world and living in that world. It's about transcending all worlds. This is the spiritual search for truth. So I wanted to give this little talk this morning because I think it's important two things. One, 
that we realize that this, how deep this uh, problem goes, how deep intolerance is built into our uh, experience of things. It's not something that simply can be eradicated through a little rational thinking. And you can test yourself, by the way. You may find, you may feel that you're a very tolerant liberal person. And if you wind up one night in a Maasai village in deepest Africa, you'll be terror-stricken. What happened to a woman I know who's, uh, it couldn't, you couldn't get more liberal. It's, it's a primal kind of terror. And two, that's the first thing, how deep this goes. And two, that it's a product of our delusion. It has a spiritual root. And it's very much a spiritual question. It cannot be addressed fully and completely with anything short of just what Malcolm X said. So if you want to find the root of prejudice in yourself, if you really want to trace it down, you're going to have to question all the assumptions you have about your world. This is all a spiritual path is about. All the assumptions you have about yourself. And to get to the bottom of it, which only you can do, and only you can find out, is then to understand what mystics have said in all times, in all places, in all cultures. There is no world. There is no self. There's only God and the play of God. There's only the Tao and the movement of the Tao. There's only Allah and Allah's sport. So, I think prejudice is a very good place to look if you're on a spiritual path. Look inside yourself. Watch it. It's a form of delusion. Wherever you can clearly see a form of delusion in yourself, that's a, a wonderful opportunity, a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. Look into it. Look all the way into it. Yeah. But isn't um, the separate... the the drawing of boundaries, the separation of self and the world, part of the play of God? I mean, Certainly. Isn't the whole trip becoming aware of the play of God? Certainly. But the delusion is part of Lila. It's part of the play. Well, in a certain sense, but the purpose then of the play, once we say that, then we, have, then we can start talking about the purpose of human life. It's to become, uh, to realize that it's play. So it's okay to be deluded. No. Why not? Because it's like saying uh, you're going to play a, so a game of soccer and it's okay not to try to win. The game collapses if you don't play to try to win. Oh, I see. You see what I mean? So in a, in a certain sense, right. you can say, okay, it's okay that I'm I've been deluded. This is all part of the play of God. But now that I begin to suspect I'm deluded, now I have a responsibility right. You know, to, to finish the game, to so play here. Become, beginning to be on the spiritual path, once you've seen a glimpse, well, you really have no other choice. Well, the, let's not get off the... <laughs> we've already tackled one heavy question this morning. Right, let's not right. get off of the choice of free okay will. If you see your neighbor hasn't had a glimpse, that they're deluded. Um, I mean, you don't say, hey, you're doing it all wrong. Uh, no, but this now it's, comes into play. Their own timing when they're going to evolve. You know, when I started on a spiritual path, uh, I had one friend that I could talk to, uh, have heart to hearts about it, because I lived in a world where, you know, this was psychotic. It was a real anomaly for the people I was around. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was very closed mouth, except with her. And we were talking about it once, and she said, well, she said, um, uh, yes, she said, it's true that, um, you know, I don't think you have a, a right to, to push anything on anybody else, and everybody has their own uh, point of view and where they are on a spiritual path. 
but I'm also where I am. So I'm going to say where I am. Do you see what I mean? So this is a question of not hiding your light. It doesn't, you know, it's one thing to go to your neighbor and say, you're doing it all wrong. You're a deluded fool. But it's another thing for, for you to be honest about what you're doing and where you're at. And this is part of what compassion is. To be compassionate is to share whatever you've learned when it's appropriate with the people around you. It's kind of tricky when it's appropriate. Kind of, of course, this is part of the play. And isn't Merrill Wolf said something about bridge building? You have to learn skills of bridge building? Well, certainly. But you only learn them from practice. You can't learn to swim by standing at, on the side of the pool. You have to get in and jump in and start paddling around. Then you learn to swim. Do you know what I mean? You thought, well, there's no other way. Experience, 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 experience. <laughs> yeah. you know. So yes, it's part of the play, but, but part of the play is also your responsibility as a human being and as a spiritual seeker. That's also part of the play. And the, the question about this, this world being imaginary, it's, there's nothing wrong with the world being imaginary. What's wrong is that we take what is imaginary to be real, and we do not see what is real. So we don't discriminate. We don't know what's imaginary and what's real. It's really a good definition of insanity. That's what an insane person, I mean, using the term within the confines of our culture, can't distinguish what's real from what's unreal. Well, humanity's like that. Yeah, Tony DeMello, who a little book called Awareness that I'm reading now, he says, we're all lunatics. We're all lunatics. Well, it's true in a certain sense. Isn't it's a good description. something like that going on in this country, Bill, with uh, the issue on uh, gays in the military, that a lot of what those opposing it uh, have this imaginary fear, and it's it's across the radio waves that you hear it in the news. I'm almost tired of it, and I know there's just a lot more talk and talk of the same thing. And then if it gets to a point where, um, let's say, uh, there's a ban's going to be lifted and gays will be accepted, the opposing forces will get more lunatic in some way. Let's. Uh, you're right, but I want to be. Well, I want to say one thing here: the lunacy is on both sides mm. of the question. Uh, there are people, I know people, who are just as militantly defending their right, and, and, and everybody who doesn't agree with them, all the fundamentalists, they're all pre-theoretical, barbarous, do you know what I mean? Evil, satanic, or whatever. I mean, it, you know, the, um, it, it's not, uh, you know, it, it works both ways, let's put it that way. Whenever we treat another human being as Whenever we look at our position and say, this is right, it's so obviously right. And by the way, in a relative sense, it's obviously right to me that there shouldn't be discrimination, but it's still relative. And whenever I say, this is right, and so that person doesn't agree, so they must be wrong, and then why are they wrong? Well, because they're ignorant, because they're uh, throwbacks, because uh, someone here said they're uh, atavistic, uh, you know. Uh, these words we think up to explain to ourselves how there could be people wrong in the world when we're right. You watch your thought process doing that, and there's there's a clue that you're falling under delusion. Do you know what I mean? Here's delusion at work. Here's here's your imagination creating worlds right there at work. You can see it right in your own experience. It's happening, creating and sustaining the world. What is the clue you were saying? The which? The clue. You said this is a clue. When you see your mind explaining why these people who disagree with you oh. do. Well, explaining the, the reasons for disagreement. Right. Okay. Because they couldn't, they couldn't be right. That's out. Because you're right. They've got to be wrong. Let's take it. Let's, and let's be hard. Let's take it from the liberal side of the, the whole gay issue. Do you know what I mean? The OCA, OCA doesn't agree. They think homosexuals are, I don't know, cursed in the eyes of God and, and they have an agenda and they're ruining the country and all those, you know. Well, they couldn't be right. So now we have to explain why they feel this way. Well, they're ignorant. That's, that's good liberal cop out. They don't, this isn't spiritual ignorance. It means that they weren't well educated. Poor people. Do you know what I mean? Or, uh, 
They're intolerant. They're bigots. That's not really an explanation, but that's a, a way to distance yourself from them. They're fascists. Another way to distance yourself from them. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you watch what happens when the two groups come together. This is, you know, it's the Muslims and the Hindus, it's the Irish and the Protestants, I mean, the Catholics and the Protestants. You, if you didn't understand the language and couldn't read the placards and you just saw a, a video of a confrontation, you, you know, who, you know, you can write your own words in the placards as long as they're opposed. You see what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. It occurs to me, too, in these really hot issues like the, the gay rights and the abortion issue, that often there's a kernel of something in there that's so illogical in our society, like with the, the gay issue. Um, one of the, I think the, the basic things is whether you're gay because um, of choice or, or because you're born that way or environment makes you. And the fundamentalists like to believe that there's an element of choice because God couldn't make you gay and then punish you for it. Right. And the same way with the abortion issue we were talking last week about where life begins and ends. I mean, in some cultures it's five years, it's one year. Our culture, to me, is bizarre because, like I said, if you've got a 20-week gestation baby here that you can abort and one over here that's 21 weeks that you have to take to ICU. And that's real bizarre. And people can't agree scientifically where life begins and ends. Because it's imaginary. Because it's imaginary, but then you've got these positions where you should be able to, and and so they're just um, fighting over weeks. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> very true. I mean, this is this is a very good thing. This business about where life begins and ends mm -hmm. that really shows you that it's that the line between life and mm -hmm. not life, life and death, is imaginary. And science is going to push it back to 20 weeks, and then what are we going to do? I mean, what about when you can save those babies in an ICU at 20 weeks? But this they isn't, really this, awesome. yeah, but the, notice that this isn't science pronouncing a truth. This is just the question of technology. Right. And it's Absolutely. based on some other thought. The thought is, well, we'll consider the baby alive when it can stand on its own outside its mother. Mm -hmm. Arbitrary. Now, a society does have to have rules, 25. by the way. <laughs> 25. <laughs> Our society is pushing it farther the other way, I'll tell you. <laughs> For those of you listening, Teresa, the line when a child can stand apart from its mother is 25 years. <laughs> uh, now, this, but this is very interesting because societies do have to have lines. You can't dispense with imagination. You can't dispense with boundaries. But you have to take responsibility and recognize that it's we who are free to draw the boundaries. They do not exist in reality. We draw them. We make the rules and we play by them. That's a heavy responsibility. This means you can't live in any real world. You can only live in an imaginary world. That's terrifying unless you at least have some glimpse of the reality that underlies all imaginary worlds. That reality that is the anchor of happiness, if you like. Yeah. I'm trying to get putting you down on this. Uh, the clue to our lunacy of... Uh, not realizing that our worlds are, our divisions are uh, imaginary is our uh, giving of explanations for the other's viewpoint or the other's uh, behavior. May I tell you something that happened? Well, uh, just make right. an explanation which does not admit they're right. In other words, it's a, oh, you see what I mean? Okay, that, that, that helps me a little bit. When, but go ahead with your argument. Okay, we, we went on retreat last uh, fall. For five days, so for five days I had no speaking and meditated all day long. Uh, I came back the next morning and took my usual walk with my friend uh, up the river. And as we were going up the river, uh, we'd come by these huge trees with these little squirrels playing around. We'd walk another mile, they're the same squirrels. That was the feeling I had, that the same squirrels were just coming along the same trees. and. My mind started thinking, well, that's why that they would have the spirit of the squirrel in, in the uh, Native Americans. And so I was attempting to explain 
this feeling I had in, in attempting to explain why the others had that view. And I mentioned something to my friend, well, you know, it could very well be that it's, it is the same spirit. And she kind of looked at me about, well, you better not go on. <laughs> <laughs> very good example. And this is, this is very interesting because this is precisely what does happen and what should happen through meditation. When you, yeah. when you drop all that, when all that starts to loosen up, that, that, uh, grid through which you look at the world, then other people's uh, experience starts to make sense because you can put yourself in their shoes. Mm -hmm. You don't have to say one's right or wrong. You can say, oh, this is how they experience it. It's not explaining away. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's being able to experience in the same way. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the things I've, I, th I don't know, maybe I wrote about it in my book or not, but I, uh, one of the things I noticed in the spiritual path, I was playing with a kitten. And I suddenly realized what Plato meant by archetypes. Yes. There's kitten here. This particular kitten will die. It's not, you know what I mean? There's something that transcends this particular kitten. And that's the archetype, the animal master of kittens. If you were a Native American, you know, you'd call it the animal master. And what is, keeps manifesting is kittenness in all these different, slightly different variations. It's like a theme in a, uh, you know, a symphony that, or, uh, in a jazz piece, you know, where, Every, I know a little bit more about jazz where every soloist gets up and they do their own improvisation on the theme. It's not just wild chaos. It's the same theme, but it's improvised, improvised. Then what is the theme? You know, everybody plays the theme. You can say, well, this is the theme, play it on the piano, but you'll play it even slightly differently than she'll play it if she tries to play the theme. So the theme doesn't ever actually, the theme itself never manifests. Only variations of the theme ever manifest. You start to understand what Plato's talking about now. Do you know what I mean? Through your own experience. Understand more about what it would be to be a Native American. Through your own experience. But this is not demanding that the other person be right or wrong. This is the freedom of play. This is the Leela. And the more you can do that, the more you can see, oh, well, my experience is the same way. It's imaginary. I can, I can get into it. I can play science. You know, I can take my car to the mechanic and discuss all the problems, but I don't have to be attached to that as being the reality. And this is the whole point. Once that loosens up, then the world of form starts to become transparent to what is unmanifest, what is not bounded in any world, but is the basis of all worlds. Any other comments or questions? All right, let's uh, call the formal part of the meeting uh, over, and you're welcome to stay and have tea and check out the library and talk and whatever you'd like to do. Mm -hmm.